0: Welcome back to Teens Find Middle Ground. My name is Talia Zafari, and this week I had a special one-on-one conversation with David Seamus, whom I met during my time at the Iowa caucus. David Seamus is a lawyer, former government official, and former politician. He was the president of the Obama Foundation from 2021 to 2023, having previously served as its CEO from 2016 to 2021. He also served in Barack Obama's administration as the White House Director of Political Affairs. Today, we will be discussing the relevancy of caucusing and what the future of democracy looks like with Gen Z at its forefront. I know that you have previously been to the 2008, 2016, and 2020 caucuses, and during those caucuses there were a few candidates that people really felt fire and support for, and they would go to lengths to garner more support for them. Do you think that here in Des Moines, all these years later, there is a similar candidate here that has that same type of deep backing?
1: The intensity of support is the strongest on the Republican, uh, which is really the only caucus this year for former President Trump. Um, the folks who caucus for him in tw- uh, twenty-four, even more so than 16. Um, There is a passion for the man that in some ways transcends issues and transcends party. It is a desire to go through negative 15 degree. Now we'll see if that happens tonight, Um, but he's the one who comes closest. Um, I saw that with Obama throughout the 2008 where it wasn't about party and even not about specific issues. There was a draw to him as a leader in what he represents. Uh, Senator Sanders had a little bit of that, Uh, although a little bit more issue-based, but certainly not party. And so what I've seen, at least in my experience, is that that intensity, that passion, it's usually not about the abstract notion of Democrat or Republican, blue or red, but it's a connection that people make with a person. So, as of today, in terms of what I've seen, former President Trump has that more than anyone else that's running. Thank you.
2: It's been interesting also seeing like some other candidates wanting to like replicate that, like mm. at the DeSantis event. I noticed he like had so much like audience like excitement when yes. he would say certain terms like "we're just gonna rip it up and throw it in the trash." You like, don't even kick your shoe at the TV screen anymore. Yeah. Like, not like giving actual policies or like constructive plans, but just saying all these phrases that like he hoped people would just back down with.
1: Yeah, Th- um, that's not unusual, mm-hmm. nor is that relegated to Republicans. What I. What I've seen over the years, and and, uh, even during the Obama campaigns, um, candidates practice different lines and speeches. And the staff and the candidate will hear and see what the crowd reacts to. And they will make both a formal note, but also a mental note of, oh, This generated intensity and enthusiasm. And what you'll then see is candidates almost like they're rehearsing material on the road. Um, Actors, musicians, entertainers of some kind in a live performance. And I don't know, Talia, if you've been to, to concerts or to events, but there's an energy that certain people give off. Right? Candidates try to find that same thing via the rhetorical flourishes, what's in a speech, the pauses, the stories that they tell. It's my experience that it has been rare, and I really can't remember, I'm sure there are some, of an instance where a policy or a specific emphasis on something substantive would draw some kind of emotive response. Now, it triggers something different, right? It's, but that's not a rally. The rally is at least what we saw last night for DeSantis. What you want to get out of there is people so enthused for you that what they will do today is bring a family member, bring a friend, bring a coworker to them. And so there is a mix between the substance and the emotional. Um, but oftentimes campaigns uh, are about the emotion. They are about the, either the elevation and the aspiration of an idea. Or, uh, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, it's the, the triggering of a warning because that also solicits and, and draws an emotion, and so for DeSantis, you know, he's not as um, he's not as. From what I saw, he may have been off in the light most favorable to the governor, um, but the lines were delivered quickly. The emphasis uh, was a little off, and, you know, in, in his defense. It was probably the eighth time that day that he had said the same thing (laughs) after seven months or longer of saying the same thing, (laughs) multiple times a day, every day. And so imagine, and I've seen this, where the candidate has to deliver that and make it fresh and new to these folks, most of whom have never heard him or her say it before. So think of campaigns and even these events as that. It's the generation of energy that then the campaign hopes is directed in a multiplicity of way. Will you volunteer? Will you donate money? Will you bring others? Will you vote? Uh, Because if it's just, oh, I have this interesting policy Mm -hmm. and approach to something. Well, oh, that's interesting.
2: The last time the Republican Iowa caucuses predicted the overall general election winner for the GOP party was a quarter of a century ago with Bush. Um, Yet, here we are in Iowa, tempers are are record low, and um, every major news outlet around us that we've observed has had dozens of reporters. How relevant do think caucuses are anymore. If they're not predicting general election winners, or like primary winners even, what are they like teaching us and are they a thing of the past?
1: Yeah, um, uh, so um, my perspective is their purpose isn't predictive. Mm -hmm. Um, Their purpose is literally... To allocate 40 delegates to the Republican National Convention it's from, a, from a pure here is the purpose of it and then New Hampshire will do the same in a couple of weeks for you still now because it goes first um, you know and I am open to all of the critiques and arguments for and against um, now for me the beauty of Iowa is it's a small enough state where in a given Saturday, Sunday, you literally can meet face to face every single person who is running to be president of the United States of America. It's like such a unique
2: experience. It is
1: such a unique opportunity. Both for the residents but for the candidates. So, um, former president, so David Axelrod, who is the chief strategist for former President Barack Obama, um, described campaigns as an MRI for the soul. Mm -hmm. And I think what David meant by that was, you get to see, close up, and hear, the character of this person who is standing in front of you saying, I want to be the President of the United States of America. You get to ask them questions, tough questions, easy questions. You get to see them interact with people. Do they pay attention equally to all people or do they only pay attention to folks who they think are important? Like that little insight into the quality of the character of the person is unique in a place like Iowa or in a small setting. This is one example. The other thing that David would say, uh, and this is true from what I remember, Barack Obama in early 2007 in Iowa was a terrible candidate. His speeches were too long. According to Axe and others, they were boring. They were explanatory. They were these long disquisitions on policy and substance, which was wonderful. But for voters, like, well, yes, that's part of what being a president is. There's another part to being president, which is you are the one person who represents all of us. Give me an insight into who you are. Because I am trusting you at the end of the day to make decisions about all of these things that I will never have time to study. and to, So I, I need a sense of you. And through the campaign, according to Axelrod, Obama improved, every single day he saw him getting better in terms of the interaction. So the other beauty of Iowa, And one of the candidates alluded to, uh, one of the intro speakers at the DeSantis (coughs) event alluded to it yesterday. Um, One of the strengths of Iowa is that it takes time. Like, they're here (laughs) just about every day for six months in 99 counties. And so by the time folks gather tomorrow night, You know, they've got a pretty good sense. Uh, Now the world is gonna shift dramatically. So you go from an old-style retail politics, getting to know someone, to New Hampshire, which is like a, a small state, they've been there also for a long period of time. But by the time you get to March 5th on Super Tuesday, you now move from a quaint personal campaigning purely television in some ways what a California election is it's just TV it's just mass media and so the ability to sit in a room with someone and so like the question back to folks is: what are we losing in not having more of this as opposed to, okay, we're going to get a hundred million dollars in television ads and never get to see the person mm-hmm. and I'm going to vote and go home, right? There are reasons for that also, just from a pure democracy access perspective. But I think it's a good balance and a good mix that you get in a place like this.
2: Definitely. And being from California, I almost am like jealous of the experience <laughs> they have. So. To me, I think the good thing about the expansion of social media is that it has allowed anyone to have a platform and like get a more close-up view of um, experience and it also democratizes information. But how do you think voting patterns are going to change because of this, especially as my generation starts to be a part of the democratic
1: process. Yeah, it's so interesting. I I, I don't know, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, I think in the light, uh, in the most beneficial light, um, because of our phones mm-hmm. and, and what we're able to gather, we literally have access to all of the world's information in a way that no humans have ever had before. That is extraordinary. And you know, take it for granted. Yeah, I'll just Google it or whatever, right? Um, So in theory, the electorate can be much more informed. Mm. Uh, The other benefit is uh, you don't need to just filter and process what a few media organizations give you. You don't have to do that. You can say, oh, okay, this is what the New York Times says, okay, this is what the Wall Street Journal says, but then you can say, oh, there are these four YouTubers who I find so interesting, I find them more compelling or I find this on Instagram more compelling, or this on TikTok more compelling, or this on Reddit more compelling. Oh, and by the way, there's this thing on X that I saw that's extraordinarily interesting, right? And so the media funnel is broken. The benefit is I don't just have to follow the direction that others are saying, well, here's the issue and here's what's most important. I can decide on my own. The detriment to that um, is that it does result in a complete disaggregation, a complete atomization of information um, in a way that, at least from a sense of social cohesion, like, when will all of us, as in a republic, in our democracy, process the same issues, the same set of facts and dispute, in order to determine something? Now, that may not be as important as we assumed it was gonna be. Um, the other thing, like on questions of misinformation or disinformation or malinformation, like, look, I understand. but um, at the end of the day once you are old enough and eligible to vote you are sovereign being a voter is just not a once and done thing where you say okay I'm going to vote for this person and I hope they do their job Being a citizen in this republic means that you have a responsibility to engage. And and I don't just mean like in a traditional, you know, there's a protest or some form of activism. Where it's like, okay, I'm gonna learn this that's affecting my community. And I'm gonna engage in a way that's meaningful. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to understand every single thing I possibly can. And so The reason that ties back into misinformation or disinformation for me is, who should be making the decision about what information should be consumed? Who? Is it the person who is, the citizen, who if we're trusting them enough to say, you have a vote Choose who is going to be in power. Um, So, if we trust them enough with that, do we trust them enough to discern what we believe to be truthful or not? Now, there are, I assume you'd say, or some would say, well, there are parameters and what can and should be discussed. Okay, who decides? Who checks them? Um, are things so clear and so settled that debate at some point is called off. Um, And so in a democracy, that question, putting aside how you label a piece of information as true or false, presumes something Um, that isn't even, for me, the the, the essential question. The essential question is, who decides? That goes to the heart of not just democracy, but essentially the the entire idea of, um, like one of the reasons I am such a nerd, my daughter says, on the Constitution and the Federalist Papers and the entire debate. Was this at the time, and still in some ways today, a radical idea that the way the Constitution was ratified wasn't by the state legislatures. It really wasn't even by the convention of a selected group of people. They were ratified by voters. Now, it was only a subset of voters, not all voters. And that's been the arc of American democracy is the more perfect union, right? But embedded in that was um, the Jeffersonian line of, uh, you know, we the people. And so I always just come back in social media for me, so to come full circle, social media to me comes back to that question of, okay, we the people who is deciding, which is why social media, social video, social content uh, is both such a tremendous opportunity to get back to first principles, but also a danger uh, for propaganda, for uh, manipulation in a variety of different ways, and so this is, uh, from my perspective, the most important work of the next... 20 years for us and for societies throughout the world is the reconciling of that idea of the sovereignty of the individual with how much they are trusted by certain groups to consume and filter and process information that is essential for them to then make those decisions about who is in power and who isn't. It's, it is as core as anything else. Sorry to get all meta but no, it. It's, it's
2: so interesting. It's almost like our democracy and like, well, I mean, clearly because of song, like the foundations of our government were not like, built for this, they weren't expecting this, so it's like, how do we move on and is it like hindering our like, democratic rights if someone is at the top to control what we see? But then sometimes is it necessary when I hear my friends say right. things that are completely un- unfactual?
1: Right. So. Yeah, and, and that's the and then, right, it's that's the tension. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on, uh, some argue that, uh it, that what you may believe is completely unfactual may not be factual. Um, and that's the debate. And so uh, brings you back to that question: we're like, okay, uh, what are those things when you sit down and look at them? analyze them as clearly as possible that you can in good conscience say the jury is in. This is undisputed fact by a preponderance of whatever standard that you have. There are probably very few things that are that way. Now, uh, well, what happens for those things that are? And then how do you factor in, um, you know, there's the First Amendment uh, jurisprudence on fire, yelling fire in a crowded theater. In that set of circumstances, your freedom of speech can be hindered by government, which is all the First Amendment is about, to say, you can't say that. Because in that instance, the, the physical safety in that moment of others is at risk by the words that you have uttered so government has a role in that space based on the time the place and the manner of what you're saying but now imagine the same person gets out of the movie theater and goes and stands at the 50-yard line in the rose bowl and there are only a hundred people in the rose bowl and and yells at the top of their lungs, fire. (laughs) And in that fact pattern, you'd probably say, that's fine. You can yell all you want. Because the circumstances are different. And therefore, the government, the state, we, the people, have a different interest in the curtailment of of liberty and rights, that's what the the Bill of Rights is about. Is um, no right is absolute. The state, as represented by the people we elect and the laws that we pass, can impinge on those liberties in certain limited set of circumstances. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I'm Good. looking forward to seeing. What happens today? It'll be fun. Me too. Nice to meet you, Tony.